0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimier Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, guymerbaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Today's Bible reading comes from Matthew 24, verses 1 to 8 and 22 to 30. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was standing or sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. 2 verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you in advance. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes down from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory.
1: Thanks, Somerset and and the the Sipple family. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, Cheery reading this morning, wasn't it? Yeah. A few, you know, some of you weren't paying attention, obviously. It's not a very cheery reading. Uh, We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, uh, We've turned the air conditioning off as we normally do. Uh, We've tried to kind of capture the best of both worlds, trying to get a a nice cool temperature while also being able to breathe. Uh, When we first came in, Darren turned the air conditioning on, and soon it was as smoky in here as it was out there because it just sucked all the nice air out Uh, from the outside into here, so we had cold, smoky air. So hopefully you, you feel cool enough but also are able to breathe. Good luck with that. Um, th- incidentally, this is the smell of Australia for me. Really? Uh, every so often people ask me what I miss about Canada, and, and, I, and my answer is often, I miss the first day of spring when the frozen earth kind of is warm enough to smell like dirt again, you know, when you've been gardening and your hands smell like dirt. Uh, for in Canada, it's just during the winter, you don't smell anything, really, and you don't notice it until the dirt, you get that smell again. That's Canada, uh, springtime, and this is the smell of Australia burning things, uh, mostly gums, although normally it's not quite as uh, late in the autumn as it is now. So fairly stressful times, certainly, Uh, and uh, yeah, trust that uh, you were well and had some uh, rest last night. know that some of you were relocated. Uh, For those of you who have been following along in this series, Follow Me, you'll know that we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew and we've been trying to answer a couple of questions about what it means to follow after Jesus for kind of two groups of people, those who are following after Jesus but haven't yet come to the point of belief and those who do believe in Jesus but still need to grapple with what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, And uh, we've been following through the gospel account and looking at the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, culminating in his death and resurrection over the Easter weekend. And then last week in this, what we've been focusing on is going back over the story and re-examining a couple of the things that Jesus had to say in light of his death and resurrection. Uh, The image that I've been using is if you've ever read a book through twice or you've seen a movie twice, once you know the ending, there's usually some details along the way that become clearer the second time through. You know know how it's going to end and all of a sudden those clues that the author had dropped along the way become clear for you. And the same is true in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and the connection of the abundant provision to the crowd and its link with Jesus' abundant provision in his death. Uh, The the kind of easiest connection is between uh, Jesus taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it to his disciples, which occurs in both places. We looked at the implications of that. And today we're looking at another of these kinds of claims that makes a lot more sense once you understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, but a whole bunch of context is necessary to make some sense of it, and that is the destruction of the temple, which is a a pretty big deal. So what we're going to do is is, uh, what we've done over the last couple of weeks, of course, trying to examine why this is significant and then look at the implications. But it is going to take a little bit of work just to kind of stay across this passage because it is one of the more complex passages in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We're going to be jumping around to a few places this morning as well. Now one of the reasons why this passage is significant in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection is uh, because of what takes place in Jesus' trial. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council, we're told in summary that all sorts of witnesses came forward to try to find something to pin on Jesus. Jesus. And we're just given a summary. A whole bunch of people tried. None of them succeeded. And then we're given one example of an accusation. If you have your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, we're told that two witnesses came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days this is the only accusation that we are given explicitly in the trial, which suggests that this was a really big deal. And it goes beyond Jesus threatening to knock down a really significant building. It has a much deeper significance. And this is what we need to explore a little bit here this morning. First of all, we need to realize that the temple, of course, was more than just a building. I mean, it was a spectacular building, but it was more than even a spectacular building. It was the one place on earth where heaven and earth met. It was the one location where the sacrifices and the offerings could be made to God. Uh, You could pray to God anywhere. You could worship God anywhere. There was no sense that God was only present in Jerusalem, but the temple was this one kind of concrete place. If you really wanted to go to the center of the world, right, where heaven and earth met, the temple was it. And so to talk about destroying the temple was talking about destroying that connection between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, which is in and of itself a fairly big deal. But the other piece that's quite noteworthy is that for Jesus to talk about the destruction of the temple, he's obviously also speaking about a coming judgment. Now, here's how this works. If God's house is going to get knocked down, the only way that could happen conceivably in a Jewish mind was for God to allow that to happen, right? Just imagine if God owned a house in your neighborhood, Uh, Do you think that it would have been threatened by anything uh, that, that would threaten a normal house? Probably not. God is in the building. So for the temple to be destroyed suggests that God would have let that happen. And the only reason God would let that happen is because he was bringing judgment on his people. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, you might remember he goes into the temple and he clears the temple. I mean, he kind of upsets the, the buyers and sellers and kind of drives them out. He probably didn't drive out the entire courtyard because it was a massive area. It was during Passover when there were thousands of people and there were Roman guards there to make sure that kind of thing didn't happen. But Jesus probably cleared a small area where he would then teach for the next several days. And when he tips, off, or tips over all those tables and all that sort of stuff, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet, speaking to the people in the temple near in Jerusalem, says, you have made the house of God into a den of robbers. Now, for all of, the, the, all of you who kind of spend your life thieving, uh, you'll know what a den of robbers is for, isn't it? Uh, it's the place you hide out after you've done a job, isn't it? Right. You go and you do your wickedness, you steal, you maraud, you pillage, and then you go back to your den right, where you are safe. And Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, several hundred years before Jesus, that you are living how you like, doing what you want. Most of it isn't pleasing to God at all. And then you're coming to the temple, offering the sacrifices, offering the, the little rituals and whatnot, and saying, we're safe, safe to do whatever we like the rest of the week. Jeremiah says the temple is going to be torn down, and lo and behold, it was. Jesus cleanses the temple and says the same thing about its use. Then there's also, you might recall this, Jesus comes to a fig tree just outside Jerusalem. He's, kind of, he's commuting back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem the week before he dies, uh, and he sees a fig tree. It's in full leaf. Looks like it should have some, uh, some figs. He goes up to it. It has no figs. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us that, in fact, it wasn't even the season for figs, which is a little bit unfair. And then Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers right away. Uh, And it's the only destructive miracle that Jesus does. And it's left a lot of commentators thinking, what was that all about? Like, was he so hungry that he was that cranky with a tree? And like, what's that? But most people believe that what Jesus is doing is actually, it's a metaphor for the temple. That the temple looked fantastic. It looked lush and green and busy and active, as if it should be bearing a great deal of fruit. But in Jesus' eyes, it was fruitless and barren, and therefore was destined for destruction. So these are the events that kind of leading up to what Jesus says in chapter 24, beyond which he's had a whole series of conflicts with the religious establishment. So when Jesus comes and predicts the destruction of the temple, he's not just talking about some future event in which a building, important or otherwise, will get knocked down. He's making a very significant claim about the judgment of God on the temple and the religious institution, and talking about breaking the connection between heaven and earth. That's a really big deal, and that might explain why this is the one accusation that sticks when Jesus is actually under trial. But there's more that we need to kind of unpack here. And this is where if you have your Bibles, I really encourage you to, uh, to have them open to Matthew 24 and then to a couple of other passages as we go along. Because Jesus leaves the temple, his disciples point out how spectacular the temple was, and it was a spectacular, spectacular building. And then Jesus says, it's all going to be torn down. And later, when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives opposite the city of Jerusalem, his disciples come and say, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There's two questions they have. One, when will the temple be destroyed? And secondly, when will you come back? Now, those things are linked in the disciples' mind because the thought of the temple being destroyed sounds like the end of the world as far as they're concerned. If the temple's going to get knocked down, something big is happening. So they ask, when's the temple going to be knocked down and what are the signs of your coming? And Jesus then takes the rest of the passage to answer that. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Verses 4 to 35, Jesus seems to be answering the question, what will be the signs that the temple is going to be destroyed? And Jesus is very clear. He's got very specific uh, d- predictions. There's a whole bunch of things that he alludes to in that that comes true, basically, in, in, in 70 AD when the temple was finally destroyed. But Jesus is very clear that he knows exactly what's going to happen. In fact, in verse 34, he says that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Those who are listening to me right now, this generation will not die before the temple is destroyed, all Right? Then in verse 36, Jesus shifts to answer their second question. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. At that point, he begins to talk about his second coming, another part of our Christian belief and doctrine that Jesus will come again at the end of all things. Where it gets tricky, because I think you're with me so far, right? Two questions, two parts of the answer, fine. Where it gets tricky is when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, he uses language that sounds like the end of the world. So let me read a section to you, starting in verse 4. Listen to this. If this is the destruction of the temple, see how big the language gets really quickly. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. "'You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. "'Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. "'Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. "'There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. "'All these are the beginning of birth pains. "'Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, "'and you will be hated by all nations because of me. "'At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, "'and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people.' Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That doesn't sound like the destruction of the temple, does it? It's escalated really, really quickly. And then we come to verse 29 where he quotes from the Old Testament. And here's where we kind of get into the wider significance. This is where you need to kind of stick with me. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." Now, once again, that sounds like the end, doesn't it? All sorts of cosmic signs the sun's not shining, the moon's dark, stars have fallen, and the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, coming on the clouds. That sounds not like the destruction of a building, but like the end. Here's where I want to draw your attention to a couple of passages in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles with you, you might notice that the bit about the sun and the moon is actually a quotation. Uh, And uh, the footnote tells you to turn to Isaiah chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, is one of several places in the Old Testament where this same kind of Um, cosmic symbolism is used. You can find the same language in Isaiah chapter 34, in Joel uh, chapter 2, um, and in Ezekiel chapter 32. Same kind of language. And they all share something in common. So in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, you you hear the same words, essentially, that were quoted by Jesus. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light, the rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The context, though, if you have your Bible, is a prophecy against Babylon. And here's the critical piece about these cosmic signs, which is true in Isaiah 13, 34, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2. And that is that whenever these cosmic signs are described, it's judgment within history. So Babylon was judged they, they, they stopped being a world superpower. They were judged, but history continued. You follow me on this one? So when Jesus uses that same kind of cosmic language to talk about the destruction and judgment on the temple, it's within history. There's still more to come. What you find, though, in Isaiah chapter 13 and 34, in Ezekiel 32, is that the nation that is judged ceases to be of any significance in the, shall we say, in the history of the world. So Babylon, you can still go go to where ancient Babylon was, right? You can still see the, the monuments. You can still see the stuff, the evidence of their empire. But once the judgment of God fell on them, they were done. So we only talk about Babylonians in the context of ancient history. Jesus applies that language to the temple. What he is saying is that the temple will be judged within history, and it will cease to be of any significance going forward. Now, that's a big claim, isn't it? Because if the temple is the one place where heaven meets earth, and you're going to take that one place away, what in the world are you going to replace it with? Well, at Jesus' trial, he gives us an answer, doesn't he? I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Hmm. That sounds suspicious, doesn't it? It sounds like once again what Jesus is doing is making everything about himself, right? He's basically saying, I'm going to knock down the temple, not literally, But I'm going to basically make sure that the temple is no longer significant and I will replace it. The temple is currently the place where heaven and earth meet, where humanity and God can meet in a particularly significant way. I'm going to make that irrelevant and replace the temple with myself. And this is where we come to the second passage that is alluded to in Matthew 24, and that's Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles with you, again, have a quick look at this passage. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is in the midst of a fairly significant vision in which there's the Ancient of Days, and there's opposition to the people of God, and then the turning point comes in verse 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Glory and sovereign power, all nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the, the text which forms the basis of Jesus' favorite title for himself. When Jesus talks about himself in the Gospels, he describes himself as the Son of Man. And it seems to come from this text where one like a son of man comes before the Ancient of Days who is God and receives authority, glory, dominion, and is worshipped. In Matthew chapter 24 again, right after the cosmic descriptions, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and the people will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is alluding to Daniel chapter 7. If you go forward to, Daniel, sorry, to Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is on trial, after they've accused him of saying, I'm going to knock down the temple and rebuild it in three days, the high priest says, are you not going to answer? Jesus remains silent. And in verse 63, the high priest says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replies by saying, you have said so, but I say to you. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7. What's about to happen to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 26? The from now on? He is about to be condemned, suffer, be crucified, and then three days later be raised to life. And in that, in his suffering and death and resurrection, Jesus says, this is when the Son of Man is glorified. This is when the Son of Man is given all authority and when worship is due his name. For those of you who are here on Easter Sunday, when we had a look at the resurrection in in Matthew's account, and Jesus is met by the women and they worship him. And Jesus is at the mountain and he is worshipped. And he doesn't correct them or rebuke them and say, what are you doing worshipping me? He accepts their worship. And at the mount in Galilee, one of the first words that Jesus says before the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. It's the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is essentially saying, this, this this is his claim. The temple used to be the place where heaven met earth where humanity and God related to one another in the clearest sort of way through the rituals and the offerings and the sacrifices. I have done away with the significance of the temple and I have replaced it with myself. There is a new way of relating to God and it's no longer to do with the temple itself. This is the claim that Jesus makes. Any idea why the religious establishment hated him and wanted him dead? Right? Because he's not just saying, I'm going to knock down the place where you work. He's saying, I'm, I'm essentially going to make where you work obsolete. And so his disciples are being told, when you see the destruction of Jerusalem actually happen, when you see the temple torn down, you will know that I was telling you the truth. That in my death and my resurrection, I have replaced the temple, and I am now the one place where humanity meets God. Does that make enough sense? It's hard work for Sunday morning, I'll admit. This is the claim that Jesus makes, and there are some enormous implications from it, aren't there? I mean, we've been talking from the, for, from the very beginning of this series that anyone can begin to follow Jesus. You don't have to believe Jesus to begin to follow him. You don't have to change your life to begin to follow him. But we've also been saying that the longer you follow him, the closer you get to the crisis of decision when you have to decide what you believe about Jesus. And the reason you have to make that decision is because Jesus makes these sorts of outrageous claims about himself. He doesn't allow you to follow him indefinitely without making that decision. Because he keeps saying stuff like this. And the implication of Jesus replacing the temple goes beyond just an outrageous statement on his behalf. It actually strikes the very heart of what Christianity is about. Because what Jesus is essentially saying is, you connect to God through a relationship with me, not through the spiritual practices of the temple. We connect to God not through practices, religious or otherwise, uh, habits or disciplines, as religious or as spiritual as they may be. We connect to God through Jesus. Now, it's pretty easy to be shaped by habits and disciplines and practices, isn't it? Most of our lives are shaped that way, right? Uh, the work that you do and where you do it and the things that your family are engaged in will shape your family and shape your life in a particular way. But that's very different from being changed by it, isn't it? You know, our family, we've been shaped by soccer. You know, There's a lot of soccer that goes on in our family, and that shapes certain things that we do and things that we talk about and places that we go and all of those sorts of things. But our family has not been changed by that. We've been shaped by it, but not changed. You know, from where, where, where I stand, the next time that our family will be changed is actually when my daughters get married. That's when our family will next face transformation, won't, won't we? Right now, we're just shaped by the practices that we do, but transformation comes through relationship. And the same thing is true with Jesus. Jesus be very easy for us to invite people into religious practices, into things that we can do and we can control in order that we can kind of work our way into relationship with God. And Jesus says, that's not going to work anymore. The sacrifices aren't going to work anymore. All those rituals, all that practice, that's not, that's not what matters. What matters is, do you trust me as the connection with, with God? And that's what it comes down to. Do you trust that Jesus is the connection with God and that there is nothing else that connects you to him. Oh, by all means, read your Bible. By all means, pray. By all means, attend church. By all means, do and engage in those religious practices that are so central to Christian faith. By all means, do that. But do not believe for a moment that they replace the very heart of what we believe, and that is that Jesus connects us to God in a way that our Bible... Cannot, in the way that attendance to church cannot, in the way that prayer cannot. We are connected to God through Jesus. And so even this outrageous claim brings us back to the question of do we trust Jesus? Do we trust that when I stand before God and He says, What have you done? But all I can say is, you know what? It's not about what I've done. It's about who I know. And I know Jesus. And I tried to live my life in a way that reflected the fact that I knew him and that he knew me. And so I'm not going to put my trust in how many times I read through the Bible or how many times I prayed or how many times I came to church or how many good deeds that I did. I'm not going to put my trust in that. I'm going to put my trust entirely in Jesus. That is the decision of faith, the crisis of decision that Jesus drives us to. These outrageous claims and their implications for knowing God. And that's a pretty significant place for us to finish. Because we are going to grapple with the question of faith. This, this question, which has been kind of in the background all the way through becomes critical for us now. What do you believe about Jesus? So I want to take a moment to pray for us. I should probably also just let you know that over the next couple of weeks, we want to give you an opportunity to make that decision of faith. And We've been talking about this, as I said from the very beginning of the series, that anyone can begin to follow Jesus, uh, and yet eventually you're going to come to the point where you need to decide. Well, next week, we want to talk about faith and what faith is and and how it works its way out in the stories in Matthew. And then, two weeks from now, we want to give people an opportunity to actually make a decision to trust in Jesus. For some of you, you might have been following Jesus now for a while, and you've been getting closer and closer to that point. Maybe two weeks' notice is not quite enough for you, but that's what you're getting, right? Two weeks, be here, right? We want to give you that opportunity to make that decision. And for those of you who have begun to follow Jesus, can I encourage you to be in prayer? Uh, This is is the heart of what we want to be about. We want to see lives changed by Jesus. Not by the stuff that we do, but by Jesus. And our task is to invite people to follow him, to meet him, and by so doing, to be changed. So I want to pray, and Janelle and the team are going to come and lead us in a couple of songs of response. Will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, uh, we acknowledge... Your presence, and we thank you that um, we thank you that you have replaced practices and doing as a way to connect with God, and you have replaced all those things with trusting in yourself. And for each one of us, that presents a particular challenge. And I ask that for those of us who are following after you, but uncertain about what we believe about you, that you would continue by your Holy Spirit to draw us to the point of decision. And that for those of us who have placed our faith in you, I ask that we might continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to trust in you alone. Now, we want to be shaped by the practices and habits that we hold. We want to be shaped by scripture and by prayer and by being with and meeting with other Christians and all of those things, but we want to be transformed by you. Because all of those practices uh, will not transform us the way you and will. So we commit ourselves again to following after you and ask again that you would change our lives, for we ask it in your name.